Welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The United States is in the middle, middle of what feels like a cultural revolution, with the very founding of the country and its leaders threatened with so-called cancellation, and the question of how we even teach what America was, is, and should be a matter of burning national controversy. Is or are there ways out of this impasse? Can something of the old Whiggish narrative of an ever-perfect union be preserved? Or do Americans need to simply agree to disagree on what America is? With me today to discuss these issues is Dr. Jay Cost, a scholar of the founding period, Gerald Ford visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a high school teacher in the state of Pennsylvania. Jay, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and I should uh, thank you as well for being the the uh, instigator of, of uh, the, my podcast, Constitutionally Speaking. Um, I'm really glad you talked me into doing that because it turned out to be one of my more successful ventures. So I'm more than happy to uh, be with you here today. And thanks for having me. Pleasure is all mine. And uh, for context, uh, this was uh, after the uh, 2016 election and uh, Jay was on Twitter complaining about how people really didn't understand or know anything about the Constitution, and he wanted to um, he wanted to do some sort of something online uh, to teach people in depth about the Constitution, but he really wasn't getting around to it. So I bugged him uh, constantly for a year uh, until he finally uh, got together with Luke Thompson, uh, formed a podcast called Constitutionally Speaking, which I highly recommend. Every single episode is incredibly informative on all sorts of things about America you may not even uh, think you're interested in, but are genuinely interested. So let me start with uh, uh, the question I ask all my uh, uh, all my guests. Um, I'm curious how you went from, I mean, you still are, a scholar of the founding period and published author to someone who uh, teaches uh, teaches high school. That's it. I mean, obviously you don't see it that way, but some people might say, "Well, why why are you quote unquote slumming?" <laughs> no, that's a good question. Um, it just really happened by chance, actually. Um, I um, this would have been back in um, the fall of two thousand. 17, the fall of 2017, I was doing adult Sunday school class at my church. I was teaching an adult Sunday school class on, it was called the Church in America is what it was. And it just so happened that there was some, um, uh, one of the teachers from the school that I'm teaching at was in the class and he liked the class. And he told me that, you know, the person who was teaching um, social studies at the school, high school social studies was um, retiring and would I be interested in the job? And I, it was, it was an interesting time in my life. So this was after, um, Trump's election. And it was sort of a point where I was kind of professionally getting very tired of commenting on the news of the day, um, as a, as the primary source of my income. It was, I just finished my dissertation, but my uh, time at the weekly standard had just kind of come to an end. So I was sort of looking for something new and different to do. And this was, you know, I just, I said, you know what, why not? Let's just, let's just give this a try. And, uh, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I've been, so this is the fourth year I've been doing it. So, um, yeah, it's a good job. I like it. It's a, it's very fulfilling actually. It's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to be doing. Great, uh, and I will be asking you about about that more later, but uh, first we need to set the scene. Um, the founding fathers of the United States. Uh, first, first of all, and that was interesting for me to learn when I read uh, Samuel Goldman's book, After Nationalism, is that the term founding fathers is actually not uh, something that was as much in common currency as a group of people who should be almost revered, uh, deified it was uh, something that uh, really emerged in like the first world war but set that aside founding fathers who were they uh and how should we um how 
how do we look at them nowadays and all the different perspectives and how what would be the best way to understand who and what they were um well those are good questions to start um i think that the the primary way when we think about the founders is we should think about the intellectual climate from which they come so they are all um men of the enlightenment and they are all at a at a sort of politically speaking they're at a crucial moment in the enlightenment where enlightenment ideas are seen to be in tension with enlightenment practices and and the founders in many respects bridge that gap so what do i mean by that well you know in the middle ages society was taken to be as a kind of natural hierarchy in europe particularly in the roman the roman church half of europe where um the church itself was a hierarchy um and everybody reported ultimately was you know sub uh, you know subservient or responsible to um the pontiff um and but that the but that also was a way so you know civil society obviously was responsible to the pontiff so but it was a reciprocal relationship because while the sort of kings and sovereigns of europe had to um bow before rome rome also served the function of legitimizing their rule by ordaining them as being from created from you know their rule is being um uh ordained by god himself and this was the way things had gone you know more or less from charlemagne forward right there was sort of this reciprocal relationship but then you have you know in the 1500s and in or the next 250 years or so you get you know the reformation um and the the, the breach in the western church but but then you also get the development of new ideas investigating and questioning the legitimacy of government by what basis do does the sovereign rule and this had been something that in england uh, you know during the 17th century the english has struggled with this i mean the english do really extraordinary things in the 17th century so i, I tell my students um you know it's just teaching my 10th graders today about Stuart England. It's really extraordinary that that during the Stuart era, um, the English depose two sovereigns and they invite three sovereigns to rule, which is really an extraordinary thing that they do. And it implies, you know, there's sort of this implied value underneath the surface that well, who's actually in charge? I mean, it's not the sovereign himself or herself but the person selecting the sovereign and that ultimately was you know parliament parliament executes charles the first parliament invites charles the second parliament ejects james the second parliament invites william and mary and then parliament sets the terms of succession such that george is crowned george the first george the elector of hanover but in the english very conservative in their disposition they're very cautious in their disposition and parliament is exercising all this power ultimately in a way that you know you get something very status quo like you get an english sort of a very english sort of system of hereditary government but this is where the americans are such an interesting bunch the american revolutionaries is that they take these ideas of legitimacy and a sort of arguments that the english had made particularly in the in deposing james ii and they take him to their logical conclusion and the logical conclusion being you know that we don't need a king or more importantly uh kings don't have any rule beyond what the people give them and so ultimately the people are the source of authority and i i think that that more than anything is really when i think of the founders as a group because socioeconomically they're very diverse you know you have merchants from boston like john hancock and then you have these fabulously wealthy wealthy almost aristocratic landed gentry from virginia like a george mason what's the connecting tissue between them 
And I really think it's this simultaneous kind of enlightenment thinking about the nature of legitimate public authority combined with a kind of courage to put these ideas into practice and, and a willingness to put them in practice in ways that the English ultimately were never prepared to, at least the English at the time were not prepared to. That's a very interesting way to put it. Um, if I may push back a bit though, um, say, you know, I'm a moderate, a person of moderate politics. You told me this amazing things about the revolution of what uh, the Americans did at the time. Uh, you might say, okay, you know what? They were people of their time. They did amazing things in their time. They had flaws of their time. But why should, in addition to appreciating their achievement at the time, why should I care about or what can or should I learn them for today when uh, not just the United States, but the world in general is far more democratic. We live in it. When the founding fathers established the United States, um, uh, they were engaged in an incredibly radical experiment. Nowadays, being America is practically, being America or being inspired by America is practically the cultural status quo. So, uh, so, so what, what, in the, what in addition or what should we continue relearning every generation from that? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think that the answer comes not in what they got rid of, but what they replaced it with. And so, because I, you know, point out, right, that the, you know, shortly after the Americans pull off this, you know, revolution, deposing the English sovereign, the French do the same thing to the House of Bourbon. Um, and they employ many of the same arguments and are swimming in the same intellectual tradition. Um, I mean, they take things in a much more radical direction. Um, but whereas the French, the, the French Revolution is a complete disaster, um, and it is a really a humanitarian catastrophe, and it, it demonstrates, I think, you know, I mean, as a conservative, and I, I know you're, you're a conservative, you know, it it proves in many respects or demonstrates the wisdom of Burkean conservatism, that you don't go mucking about with social institutions willy-nilly, right? Um, and I think that this is where the, the example of the Americans is so unique and so important. And it's, it, it's, it, 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 is, it remains astonishing that the Americans, it's not just that they overthrew a hereditary sovereign and instituted self-governance it's that they did so in such a practically and theoretically practical wisdom understood how politics worked they were they they were politicians many of them I mean, america had democratic institutions and they understood how politics was supposed to function um and so they actually were capable of engaging in self-government, but they also created a set of rules that could be sustained. And it, I mean, it's just remarkable that if, if you look, for instance, over the first, let's say the French Revolution begins in 1789 and it ends in 1815, right, effectively. I mean, the French, I mean, Napoleon ends it, but you know, the whole thing, the whole affair comes to this sort of crashing, you know, tragic end in 25 years, right? Look at America over the course of 25 years, right? From the time revolution is declared in 1776, so go 25 years into the future, into 1801, with the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson. And, and, and it's an extraordinary achievement because Jefferson's inauguration in his first term is a time of incredible public harmony. I mean, and 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 I would say, you know, a, an underappreciated sort of election of people we don't we don't really appreciate in a, one election that gets overlooked 
is the election of 1804. And it, it gets overlooked because it was such a, a lopsided contest. But that itself is really extraordinary it, that that 25 years or, you know, by that point, you know, 28 years into this revolution, you know, the United States of America is largely united such that, you know, Jefferson wins. I'm pulling it up here on my uh, on my computer here. It's extraordinary. Jefferson wins 162 electoral votes to 14 for Pinckney. He wins almost the entirety of New England. So you have this election where the entire country is more or less, yeah, we're pretty happy with things. That to me is 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 truly remarkable um, that the Americans were able to not just break with Great Britain, but forge a new country that was not not just that it was ultimately successful because of course you can look at the united states of america look at the continent that the americans had look at the other powers on the continent the weakness of the other european powers in holding the continent and just say well okay well of course you know they're going to get continental america and from that they're going to be able to dwarf your europe i mean all of that are is out of anybody's hands you could say but like just look at the united states in 1804 it is a marvel um and that in and of itself is just i think legitimizes the study of them and and the effort to say okay well what what did they understand that we can learn from today what what what, what were they doing what were they thinking how did they craft a republic basically from scratch not entirely from scratch basically from scratch that by 1804 everybody was reasonably pleased with it's really amazing yeah i i definitely agree one of the things i i, I like telling people when they're constantly complaining about the united states is i tell them that the united states is the oldest or one of the oldest modern states in existence almost every other country that became a modern democracy or even a modern non-monarchy or traditional empire uh, with with its own constitution is is actually younger than the US uh, but once again if I may push back um, nowadays the main concern uh, among people who talk about politics and who are interested in politics and this is true I think uh, not just in the elite spaces but maybe of general Americans is how we deal with division, how we deal with polarization. Because you mentioned this amazing period when uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, sweeps the country, but the truth is, is that the uh, the modal, the uh, the the average situation in United States history is one of very very fierce uh, partisan fighting uh, over a lot of very critical issues, whether it be slavery or civil rights or how the economy should be structured or how federal power should be uh, apportioned. Um, and indeed, what the, you mentioned Jefferson, so I'll mention the simple fact. Since 1988, when George H.W. Bush won Reagan's third term, nobody, neither Democratic nor Republican, has won a, a true sweep of the states at 40 plus. And that to me says everything. And Perhaps we should be not just focusing on what the founders did, but the reality of the fact that the founders constantly disagreed with one another and how they managed disagreement. And if so, how would we go about that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that, um, you know, it's when we look at the founders, I mean, we, sh we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which politics for them was a knife fight in many respects you know especially you look at jeff i mean it's and it's weird in or maybe it's ironic and i think some some of his contemporaries were very upset at the irony that it was jefferson who merges as the great uniter where he was during the washington during washington's first term i mean i think it was fair to say that he was one of the main people who was undermining the unity that he then sought to craft in the 1800s and and i don't think that division is in and of itself a problem when the terms of the division are well i'll put it this way it depends on what we're divided over and it depends on the nature of the division 
right? So it, Jefferson in, in his inaugural in 1801 said, you know, not every difference of opinion is a difference in principle. And he goes on to say, we are all Republicans, we're all Federalists, right? This And, and I think it's important to appreciate as well. And, and I point this out in my, in my book, my new biography of James Madison, that, you know, one of the, even in the 1790s, when partisan divisions were so heated, um, nobody was trying to undo the Constitution. There was no Jacobin faction. I mean, there was accusations of Jacobinism. Um, but both the Republican faction under Jefferson and Madison and the Federalist faction under Hamilton were operating within the confines of the Constitution, which I think is one of the reasons the founding documents that they gave us, the legal structure they gave us is so impressive because it has for most of our history been a framework through which disputes could occur and ultimately either you know be resolved or maybe be sustained over time. But you don't allow disputes to destroy civil society. Um, I mean, the, the exception to that is, is, is the Civil War and the slave question, right? And Lincoln's idea of the, the impossibility of a house divided um, is really, you know, the one time that our institutions have been unable to peacefully resolve disputes. So that is, I think, one way in which um, we can look at the founders and look at the Constitution and marvel at it and its ability to manage the resolution of conflict in society, which is really what government is supposed to do. Government, the main function of government is the provision of justice, which is ultimately about resolving conflict between different people, different individuals, and then ultimately between groups of individuals and and the, and, and, and resolving conflict and promoting justice without um, destroying civil society. So the fact that our constitution has been able to do that reasonably well over time, um, I think is, is a real reason to celebrate it. But I think the other thing that we can look at too, is the example of the founders of how they behave within political society, um, and how they, they, and, and how they viewed politics as well and how they really kind of saw politics as that kind of venue. And, and, I, and I think like a great example of this, you know, it's, I, it's interesting too, because, you know, you and I both are on Twitter and, and, and we see all the time, you know, progressives on Twitter who, you know, bemoan the existence of the Senate um, and point out its anti-democratic tendencies. And, I mean, they, and they're right. I mean, it's, the Senate is not a democratic institution. There's no way to think of it as a democratic institution. It's not. It was, um, but it, and it's, it's not like this is a new discovery, you know, I mean, nowadays they talk about, they compare Wyoming to California as, as like an aha gotcha moment, but you know, back in 1787, you could make the same basic point by comparing, uh, Delaware to Virginia. And you could even make the point more aggressively there because Delaware had exactly, actually until relatively recently had been part of Pennsylvania. You know, so you could say, like, well, why did these three splinter counties from Pennsylvania get the same number of seats in the Senate as the, you know, mighty state of Virginia? And people point this out as some sort of flaw within the Constitution. But I actually think it's one of the great virtues of the Constitution because it represented a compromise. It was a compromise between the large states and the small states. It was a compromise that was necessary to secure the existence of the Union itself. You couldn't have a country without Connecticut and New Jersey and Delaware and Maryland and New Hampshire. And none of them ultimately were going to agree to have their political voice effectively silenced in a purely proportional system. So it was a compromise that had to be made for the sake of the Union. So the Constitution itself reflects these compromises. And I think that over time, Constitution and the institutions it's created have been very good at um, forging compromises. And, and I think that when we think about the founders, one of the things we should appreciate about them is their interest in compromising among one another, which I think is something that is decidedly lacking today 
And I think that that is probably one of the reasons why I think the founders remain at least as relevant today as they have in any kind of, you know, era where we're looking back in time. Why should we look back at these people? Because they understood the importance of compromise, which is something that I don't, I don't think our political class even understands what compromise is. I certainly don't think that the hyper uh, interested, hyper hyperactive, I guess, group of uh, you know the small dollar ideological activists certainly don't appreciate the virtue uh, and the utility of compromise. And so, when ta- insofar as talking about the founders is going to remind people about the need for compromises in a in a in a in a democratic system of government then i'd say it's probably a good thing that we're talking about them those are great points and it's uh, something i myself were mentioning twitter i often try and point out that politics is a profession of its own it has its own skill set it has its own rules and a lot of the things we find distasteful about it uh, such as you know backroom deals or compromises or all sorts of quid pro quo, I mean, assuming not illegal and corrupt, can actually often be benef- a beneficial way to get two or three or more groups who can't really bring themselves to agree on anything to arrive at something which, okay, they won't agree 100%, but at the very least they can live with it. Uh, but you mentioned uh, things today about uh, the small dollar and so forth. The truth is, is that we like to joke about, uh, uh, especially people in the right lately say, America is a republic, not a democracy. That's true and not true in its structure, as you said, in the Constitution, especially with the Senate, uh, the federated powers, it is much more structured like an extended republic. But um, many more people can vote uh, than were able in the founders' time. Many more people have the resources to be able to influence um political uh, uh, issues, uh, either through party primaries or through donating uh, to, uh, to various causes. And on the one hand, that's great. You know, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want, the, you wouldn't want the Republic to effectively turn into an oligarchy where nobody has a say. Uh, on the other hand, you're right, is in that it, it, it privileges the, the hyper-engaged. So how, how do we, how do we, are there ways to moderate that or find ways to compromise or arrive at things that people can at least live with, even gnashing their teeth, without going in the direction of, say, I've seen some people basically argue for a return to the good old days when only gentlemen could vote? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, I would say for, for starters, I mean, I hear the same thing, too. People, I mean, people on the right. Um, who otherwise I would probably agree with on issues like, I don't know, taxes and social policy, say we're a republic, not a democracy. I am not, that is not a good response. It's not, it's historically inept because it's almost sort of a, history over time, the the word democracy in the 1780s had a bad reputation. Democracy was seen as the rule of the masses, the rule of the mob, and it would be seen more as a, um, you know, when you think about democracy, it would be more almost a kind of direct democracy type of thing. What democracy as we take it today is actually pretty similar to what they saw a republic as with, as you, you said, the difference being universal adult suffrage. I mean, that's been the real change. Um, is we've moved, we have the people vote for offices and, you know, just like they did back then, except, you know, usually there were property qualifications and the suffrage was restricted to white male property holders. But now we have universal adult suffrage, but it's still, we can, you can call that a democracy. You can call it a republic. The words are, across the span of history, the words are interchangeable in their meaning, I think. When people say we're a democracy, not a republic, what they should what they should be saying is that we are a half federated system and a half national system. We are both at the same time. They're simultaneously, the people of the United States are directly in charge of governing through the House of Representatives 
and then they are in charge of governing through the medium of the states which retain sovereignty hence the value and the virtue of the senate the senate reflects the fact that the states still have meaningful sovereignty in the united states of america and that comes through in two important ways the first is that you know um the tenth amendment it illustrates you know the limits of federal power and the tenth amendment is used to sort of highlight the enumeration of powers in article one section eight so you know for instance if you go into one state they have a mask mandate you go into another state they don't have a mask mandate that's the power of the states in action so that's one way and the other way the states retain power is through a direct role in the creation of federal policy and they states continue to retain that through the united states senate and also through the electoral college um that's the way it was designed now we've changed that to going from the state legislatures choose senators to the people of the states themselves but that doesn't alter the fact that the senate reflects the sovereignty of the states all it really does is alter how that sovereignty is exercised states retain a sovereign role in both of these functions um, in their own internal matters and then also influencing federal policy so i would say that with respect to the your other sort of point about the rise of ideological activists and avi you've been following me for years you know one of my old saws and hobby horses or whatever you want to call it is the parties and I think that we are dealing now in this age with the um, consequences of having eviscerated the parties through the, through the course of the 20th century, with really the capstone being the McCain-Feingold Act, which I think is one of the really worst pieces of legislation, certainly in my lifetime, the worst pieces of domestic legislation that was ever really passed. Um, the parties used to be the mechanism we were talking a moment ago about the way in which the constitution mediates as a mediator of social conflict the parties are used to serve as mediators of a of conflict as well only they were sort of like intramural conflicts right between sides so you and i would both be you and i are both conservatives so it would be in the conservative party which today would be the republican party the why why are we in the republican party the, the function of the republican party is to mediate conflicts among people who are on this side of the ideological spectrum to force us to come to agreements about what our party agenda will be to present that agenda to the voters and then ultimately to obligate if if our side wins to go into the um to go into the congress and into the government and enact the agenda that our side promises that that's what parties do that's why we have parties parties are distinct from ideologies ideologies are a system of ideas about policies that should be enacted parties are ultimately ways to get those po policies enacted the united states of america from the very beginning has felt that pol parties are icky we don't like parties um we don't you know there's a sort of instinctive i don't know what it is where it comes from but this instinctive kind of like there's only one legitimate view of the good life or the one legitimate view of the public interest um i don't know what it is we keep we keep insisting that so we've always sort of had this kind of icky attitude towards parties and the number of people over the years who have sort of said no we shouldn't have this view are so few that you can kind of name them off you know the top of your head i mean edmund burke is remembered as one of the reasons of you know saying no actually parties and he was talking about parties in parliament but parties are actually good martin van buren made the point too parties are good parties are necessary well-functioning parties are necessary for the maintenance of republican government and what did we do in the 20th century we we strip the parties of many of their powers, right? I mean, there's several powers that the parties claimed for themselves that from very early on, they claimed these powers for themselves. One of the things the parties claimed for themselves was the, part, was the power to nominate candidates, right? This is one of the reasons Jefferson and Madison found the party all the way back in the 1790s. These guys 
are committed to the same program that you're agreed to should vote for them. And we vouch for their character. They have our endorsement. That's really what a nomination is, right? Or what it was. Yeah, but that's not what we have anymore. We have a system of primaries now, basically, where anybody can yeah, anybody can vote them. Forget like party elites making these choices. And by elites, I don't mean like, you know, the people who on K Street. I mean like, you know, the party leaders in your county who are the ones who keep the party running in between elections. They don't get to, I mean, they're elite only in a very, you know, narrow sense of the word. They're not in charge anymore. Instead, anybody can vote in primaries. You don't even have to be a member of a party, you know, and, and to be a member of a party is completely meaningless. Like, you know, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the Republican Party. Why is that? Well, because I live in Pennsylvania and I'm registered as a Republican. If you live in, say, you live in Virginia, you can call yourself a member of the Republican Party. and You don't even have to do anything because they don't have party registrations there. So you got rid of that. We've taken the power of nomination away from parties. And, 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 you know, another thing we did was we took away from the parties the power of financing campaigns. And this is really, McCain-Feingold managed this, but, you know, in fairness to McCain-Feingold, it was following from a long stream of efforts to regulate campaign finance and t remove the parties out of it. The only thing McCain-Feingold really did was succeed in many respects, was... The, the reality is, is that politics is very, very expensive in a republic, in a continent-spanning republic such as the United States. It's expensive. The money has to be raised somewhere. And the parties, by raising the money, can exercise leverage over the candidates for office. And so this can actually be, party control of campaign finance can actually be a good thing, right? But McCain-Feingold destroyed that by getting rid of um, what was called soft money. I won't get it too far into the details, but McCain-Feingold, in many respects, boots the party from the task of financing political campaigns and sort of throws it out into the open. So now, we, now we're in the age of super PACs, which are financed by, you know, basically billionaires with whatever eccentricities they have. That's one way politics is financed by, you know, uh, super PACs can pay for ads and pay all those expenses and operate completely independent of the candidate. That's one way. And then another way is remaining, you know, through corporate America and sort of interest group donations, and but I, which I think is still a problem. I wrote about that in my second book, Republic No More. I think that remains a huge problem with politics. I think it's why politics retains a corporatist bent to it because corporate America or business interests and professional group interests continue to exercise outsized influence through campaign finance. But really, we've seen increasingly with the rise of the internet, and I would say the first time I really saw this happen in many respects was with Howard Dean. Howard Dean's ability to muscle into the national conversation in 2004, despite the fact that he was a governor from you know Vermont, um, you know, not to diminish the virtues of the state of Vermont, but when I think of you know national statesmen marching on of the first rank i don't think of the state of vermont you know um how was he able to do that well he was able to do that by saying things that the hardcore left wing of the country wanted here and using the internet to raise funds and this is something that has been done again and again and again and it has become in many respects not just the main way in which money is sort of raised um but in many respects it just has attracted, I think this, you know, the internet and this sort of raising funds has attracted a growing number of people in politics who really are just rampant narcissists who are there not to get anything done, but are there, who got in there because they, they were able to draw eyes to them and who just are, are continuing to be in politics because they like to have people looking at them. Um, and, and I think all of this is, is downstream of McCain-Feingold and more broadly, um, the destruction of the party system. And you, know, you go back to 2016 and you think about the nomination of Donald Trump, you know, 100 years earlier, in, in 1916, there is no way Donald Trump would have won the nomination for the Republican Party, somebody like that, it, because 
he the the party the actual people who ran the party were the ones who had the power to choose the nominee and they would have said no right um and we just we've taken that power away from them now should they have should that power have been reformed yes absolutely the problem is though is that rather than reform our parties and rather think about the parties as essential interests instruments of democracy and think about how and why they serve the interests of democracy we have instead chosen to just destroy them and now we are living in the aftermath and we're living in an era where the parties exercise actually very little control uh well that uh, that's uh certainly a lot to chew on uh and it would be great to discuss this further but uh, i don't want to miss the second subject that i brought up uh in our introduction so let's start. Uh, you teach social studies in high school. Um, the generation you teach uh, is hooked on social media, gets a lot of information, some of it, a lot, or maybe a lot of it, maybe most of it, probably slanted one way or another. Um, and they have very seemingly very easy answers about what's good and what's bad, what needs to be chucked or canceled, what needs to be... Um, what needs to be supported based on who was uh, for groups that were historically disadvantaged or who was against. And you enter the classroom. How do you, um, if you do, uh, try and explain to them, not necessarily to say that everything that, you know, the founders or earlier generations did was right, but maybe hold your horses, maybe understand that things were a little more complicated than that. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the first thing is the teenagers are still, despite social media, they're still teenagers. And so my main task whenever I'm teaching history is to try and get them to care, right? Um, and to show them that it's actually relevant and meaningful. Because um, most of them, you know, teenagers are still, you know, it doesn't matter what era you're in. Teenagers are still teenagers and they still have their own, um, you know, you, you know, there's most of them don't care. So that's sort of one thing to bear in mind. One thing that I do um, is is I'm a big believer in more information is better. Um, and so I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I was recently teaching about the Mexican-American War and the, um, the, the Mexican-American War is a reflection of the agenda of the Jacksonian Democrats and the inherent white chauvinism of Jacksonian democracy and its treatment of Native Americans and the Trail of Tears and its attitude towards um, the Mexicans themselves and generally speaking, you know, the sort of, you know, our neighbors to the South. And, and you know, rather than gloss over those sorts of racial undertones I, I emphasize them. I talk about them. And, and you know, because it's true. It's just part of the story. And and I think that one of the things I, I try to do, at least in the areas in which I, I have the knowledge to do it, is to provide them with the whole story. Um, and, 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 but that's only part. So talking about the downsides, I, I do as a, as a way to sort of give context to, the upsides, you know, like, like, for instance, another, I'll give you another example. Like we're talking about, um, talking today with my AP history kids, we were talking about the election of 1856, the splintering of the Whigs into the Republican Party, and then into the Know Nothing Party. Um, and the, you know, this anti-immigrant party of the Know Nothings. And, and, you know, rather than brush that aside, I, I said, you know, Lincoln's going to have to find a way to fit them into his coalition. You know, and 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 you know, it's just reality. And, and but the the goal with this is is you know I'm gonna try and give them a full portrait, a fuller portrait of Abraham Lincoln, right? A warts and all portrait. And and I and one of the things I like to do is I try to avoid giving the kind of sanitized, overly sanitized version of the founding and of American history that excuses a lot of the bad things that we've done. Um, but it, it, I like to bring that in. But then ultimately, it, the ultimate context is that like 
the bent of my teaching is is on Lincoln is that you just have to admire this man. Like it's just unbelievable what he was able to accomplish. Um, and and to that, you know, I'm not going to reimagine him as an abolitionist from the beginning. We're, we're going to talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. We're going to talk about the racism embedded in Lincoln's views in Lincoln-Douglas. And but that ultimately. The entire portrait of Lincoln himself, I think, even when you, especially when you acknowledge the uglier aspects, you know, the portrait that still emerges is powerful and inspiring. And I think that if it's a more, it's, it's impressive, it's amazing, I think, that when you look at him as he really was with a sort of warts and all picture, he is still, you know, the greatest American ever to live. And that his story itself is so remarkable and his accomplishments are so magnificent. Um, even when you even when you see these sorts of aspects of his ideology that are, you know, to us are backwards and that are backwards. Um, and that that's a that's a remarkable thing. And, and that I think that ultimately I, I, I think that you have to understand and appreciate the bad parts of America so that the so that the good parts can really be seen for what they were that's sort of my view of it and and i I sort of view it similar to you know like you know there's sort of different ways we think of love right um you know like you know your teenager oh i love her i love him when you're a teenager you know but it's a very shallow form of love but when you're married and you have kids and you've seen the worst of your spouse but you've seen the best of your spouse as well and you can say you love your spouse then that i think is real love and i think that that is where real love of country and real patriotism is where you understand the things that your country has done and will do in the future that are not good things but you see at its core you see it for what it is and you still love it that's what i try and inspire in my students it's sort of that kind of paving the way for like a true love of country rather than just a style a love of a stylized sanitized version of the country um and that i mean and and also you know rejecting the kind of radical left ethos of a hatred of the country i mean i just reject that in and of itself is just i think it's just it requires one to be really ignorant of history to look at this country and not be amazed at its its success and its its prosperity and how quickly and radically it has distributed that prosperity far and wide. I don't think there's any country in the history of the world that's done what we've managed to do in the short span of time that our country's been alive. So I don't even, I can't even understand really that. I mean, you know, like this sort of the 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 ugly aspects of America for somebody to for the, and I know that for some people it adds up to, I hate America. I've just never been able to understand that. It's never something that I've really felt. So my bent is always sort of like this, you know, I love America. I love this country. Um, and here's the full picture of the country, at least as best as I'm able to present it to them. That's a great approach. Um, so if I may follow up on that, um, among the students who are want to go beyond just passing the test and then forgetting about it. Um, what is their reaction to learn, hearing this complicated, but nevertheless uh, inspiring story of the United States? I think usually surprise. Um, I think, I, I think surprise a lot of times. Um, you know, I was talking to, there's somebody at the school. She, she works as a, as an aide in the school and she picked up um, uh, uh, Van. I can't remember Van Woodward's. I think it's Van Woodward's "The Strange Career of Jim Crow." She got it at just like um, you know, like a flea market or something. And she read and she said, "I had no idea about Jim Crow. I had no idea that this was the way um, you know African Americans were treated. They didn't teach us that in in." when I was in school. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, I often get that, you know, I, I, but you know, one of the things I like to do, um, is, is I really, you know, I, I like, I try to be funny about it and, and I have a good rapport with them 
And so I, I like to make jokes about things like I, I, I you know, one of the, I always talk about how important alcohol is, <laughs> drinking is in the history of the United States of America, you know, um, you know, like, for instance, you know, today I was just speaking extemporaneously with them, but I, I was telling them, you know, like when we get to the temperance movement, it's it, it's the temperance movement's really a puzzle for the progressive left today because the temperance movement is like, you know. Um, and I, I said this to them. I said the the temperance movement is really one of the really great first feminist political movements in the country, but it was direct, it was directed against the Catholics, and they were very entertained by that. So a lot of times it just comes in in sort of how you um, how you present how you present the story to them, and I, and I usually do it with um, I don't put my moral outrage to the side. Um, I, I, you know, can be very critical of, you know, very critical of them, of the founders, for instance, when they, you know, in their sort of decision to just not apply their revolutionary. I mean, we were talking at the beginning of the podcast about how the founders were willing to apply revolutionary ideas. They didn't do that with slavery. You know, they knew slavery was wrong. At least most of them did. They had read their Locke and they'd read their, you know, uh, Cato and they had read their Bolingbroke and they understood the contract theory of government. They understood the idea of natural liberty and they knew it should be applied to slaves, enslaved people. And they chose not to do that. And I, I point that out to them. So, you know, I, but usually what I do with him is I try to be funny about it and just sort of be like, you know, what do you, you know, not, not like flip, but, you know, usually with especially when you're talking to high schoolers to sort of approach things with kind of a sense of humor. Um, and I just, I tend to think American history is funny. I, it's just the way I sort of look at it. So they, they usually, I, I, I can sort of make light of certain things and, you know, um, like for instance, what I was saying about the temperance movement, you know, I just sort of have this kind of way of looking at, at history as, as sort of being funny and ironic and things like that. And that can usually sort of lighten the mood um, and keep them sort of interested and engaged um, is usually what I end up doing. Cool. Um, so uh, if I may ask, in addition to your telling us how you teach, um, I'm curious, since you know the national debate tends to overwhelmingly be about um, either states or localities or the federal government trying to uh, dictate or quote-unquote recommend curriculum. In your experience, in your experience uh, interacting with uh, teacher colleagues, just how much does that matter in terms of teaching this very um, almost third rail uh, thing, thing of teaching American history? Well, I'm very fortunate in that I'm teaching at a private school. Um, so, and it's a very small private school. So I've had really kind of liberty to put the curriculum together as I like. So this is my fourth year uh, teaching here. So I've been able to kind of redesign the curriculum, which has been really um, enjoyable. I've really enjoyed doing that. So dealing, you know, and you see all this sort of, um, impositions of various curricula that are imposed by, um, you know, school boards or state governments or things like that. I don't, I don't have to deal with any of that, even down to, you know, I pick the, you know, I pick the textbooks for my U.S. history classes, for instance, you know, I pick, um, and by the way, if people are looking for good history textbooks, the ones that I picked were, um, books by Thomas Kidd, who is a, I think he's a Baylor, I want to say, he's a professor of history at Baylor. Um, uh, it's a two-volume series, it's just called American History, and he's actually got a new a biography of Thomas Jefferson coming out, I think, so he's a, you know, if you're looking for good, um, you know, war, they, Kidd is very much a in the same, I, I sort of take him to be similar, he's very, he emphasizes, you know, he doesn't shy away from bad treatment of the native, native, native population, things like that. Um, but it's still very, you know, it's, it's a loving portrait of a country flaws and all. So I've been very fortunate though, in that I don't have to deal with that. And in so far as I do, and I, I'm free, like if I, I tell my students all that the textbook's wrong on this, I do that all the time too. I'll tell them the textbook says this, but this is actually not true. You know, like for, I mentioned today, we were talking about um, 
uh, we're talking about the 1850s and the title of the chapter that we're on is called Drifting Toward Disunion. And I told them that that's a terrible title to say that we were drifting. It was really more like we were rushing headlong into disunion. You know, so I'm always, and, and that's one of the nice things about teaching in school like this. I really have a lot of freedom to craft in the curriculum and how I pro, uh, approach it as I, I as I like. So it's really, um, it's a fun job for me. It's a really good fit um, kind of vocation for me as well to be able to do this and really kind of um, use my knowledge base and leverage it however I please. So it's been, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Okay. And uh, so let's uh, finish off uh, with one last, uh, I guess, entertaining question. What founder most inspires you? What founder would you love to have drinks with? And what founder would you either want to shy away from or punch in the face? And why for all three? <laughs> um, I would say the answer to the first two questions is James Madison. Um, probably, you know, I just wrote a biography of him, so you'll forgive me for plugging my book, but it's called James Madison, America's First Politician. So it's out now, came out last month. Um, I'm a Madison fan. I've long been a Madison fan. Um, I really admire him, not just his intellect, but also his political skills. Um, and I really admire him as somebody who was easily overlooked, as somebody you didn't really see coming. Um, and I, the, the best example of that, I think, is probably Madison going mano a mano over the ratification of the Constitution in Virginia in June 1787 with Patrick Henry. And Madison wipes the floor with him. And I think that is with Patrick Henry of all people, you know, the great, the great rhetorical Titan of revolutionary Virginia is just frankly embarrassed by James Madison. Um, you know, five foot four, hundred pounds, soft voice, James Madison. And then a sort of fun kind of after, you know, Henry wants to deny Madison a house seat by engaging in what we today call gerrymandering. And Patrick Henry, by the way, is very lucky he didn't get named Henry Mandering, but he designed a district that he thought Madison couldn't possibly win. And then he gets James Monroe, of all people, Madison's friend, to run in the district. Um, and Madison wins. It's remarkable to me. So I, I find that really remarkable. Um, so and, and, and so that's why I most admire Madison, but also would want to have a drink with him because he was notable notable for being very witty and in intimate gatherings of people he was not a big party plush presser of the flesh but in one-on-one -on -one conversations he was said to have been an extraordinary conversationalist and very funny and very wise and so to have a conversation with him as you said a drink that would be something i would really like to have the founder I would be most likely to shy away from, um, probably, that's a hard question for me to answer because there are founders I don't like, but I would, if I could go back in time and meet, like, found two founders who, whom I don't like as much are Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. I still have respect for them, um, but they have qualities that come through the pages of history that I, I find distasteful um, that I think Madison didn't have as much. Um, and I, so part of me would, you know, I, I put it this way. I would, you know, like I would actually want to meet Alexander Hamilton to find out why so many people wanted to punch him in the face. Um, or likewise with the Thomas Jefferson. Why, why were there so many people who were rubbed the wrong way by Thomas Jefferson um, and, by, and by Alexander Hamilton, right? When my, I myself, when I look at like both of them, I, I find myself displeased with them for a variety of reasons, but that almost in sort of a kind of curiosity where I would want to, you know, have a drink with James Madison to, you know, just 
have a glimpse of his full personality. I'd I'd want to have a drink with Alexander Hamilton to get a sense of why so many people hated him. I would say that doesn't exactly answer your question. So maybe the the founder, maybe if I said most likely to like actually like no, I don't want anything to do with him would probably be would probably be Patrick Henry. I would say probably Patrick Henry. Excellent. Uh, and I look forward to uh, reading uh, your book on James Madison when I get through uh, the very long list of books I already have to read. Uh, Jay Cost, thank you very much for coming on. It's been very enlightening, entertaining, and very interesting. Thank you so much for having me, Avi. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it.